Voices. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to Season 2, Episode 13 of YDHTY, the podcast for the independent voter the exhausted majority that is looking for political discussion in more than just red or blue. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And if you know of another political independent like yourself who might like this show, please share it with them. This podcast grows by word of mouth. Now, before I get into the episode, I'd like to make a very special announcement that our editorial advisor... The Admiral, the Admirable, Adam Yaffe, is joining YDHTY as its official producer, trying to fill the enormous shoes of the late great Big Gino, Jason Putney, here at Snake Killer Studios. So wish him well, he won't hear you. Now, in 1956, the U.S. began construction on the interstate highway system with the goal of completing it in 10 years. And when the project was finally completed in 1992, which is a little over 10 years for those of you doing the math, China embarked on an infrastructure binge of similar ambition, which has created much anxiety amongst some in the United States because they have airports that are shinier than ours. Now, with an infrastructure bill slowly grinding its way through Congress, I wanted to understand what both countries got for their investment and whether it could offer us any insight into how the trillion some odd dollars Congress is looking to spend over the next decade could be put to best use. And to help shed some light on this, I invited Nathaniel Baum-Snow, professor of economic analysis and policy from the University of Toronto and an expert in the impact transportation infrastructure had on US and Chinese cities. In this conversation, we learn who the winners and losers were in America's last spending boom, how the centralized nature of China's building boom helped them contain costs, and how our own highway system actually resulted in Americans stealing Americans' jobs long before anyone else could. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. Could you start off by just talking about what it is you do and what you focus on? Absolutely. So I'm an economist, uh, and I work at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. And I've done a bunch of work uh, looking at the impacts of the highway system, both in the U.S. and in China. So really, my interest in the matter is about the economics of cities and how highways shape the uh, economy of cities, how suburbanization and the relocation of people and firms have uh, has happened uh, over the past uh, 50, 60 years, uh, both in the US and China, and then what the implications are for uh, productivity and ultimately economic growth. And if you listening didn't clue in on why I was so interested in this. It's, of course, because we have an infrastructure bill that is working its way through Congress or not here in the U.S. 
And part of that urgency is driven by the rise of China, where in addition to being anxious over their growing economy and their growing military, we in America are also anxious about their high-speed rail and very shiny airports. And I felt that given their big investment in infrastructure, they could offer, number one, a very good comparison as to uh, their approach to it versus ours. Uh, and, uh, and number two, maybe give us some guidance as to what we want to prioritize when it comes to spending in the United States. Um, I have to ask you this question before we dive in, though. Okay. Is this the most interesting year to be an economist or no? Wow. Well, 2007, 2008 was a pretty interesting year as well for different reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, with the housing market crash and the financial crisis. So... Yeah. Um, but uh, this 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 year is pretty pretty interesting. We'll 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 see where it goes. Actually, you know, from from my own personal interests, the, the infrastructure yeah. bill under consideration um, by uh, the Congress now um, is you know something that really could be transformative, I think, for the economy. And so that's a little bit more close to my own wheelhouse than what was going on in two thousand eight. I'd like to bring the listener up to speed on modern American infrastructure, sure. and I'd really like to start with the post-World War II era. I think World War II was kind of transformative in uh, showing the country that the government could do big things um, and uh, convincing even the government itself that it could do big things, right? Um, and at the same time, there was a lot of concern, of course, about uh, defense readiness um, and uh, the intercity travel network in the U.S. You know, was dominated by railroads uh, after World War mm -hmm. II, um, but World War II showed that there was a real need for better road infrastructure. Um, and mm -hmm. so the federal government... Um, organized uh, an initiative to kind of come up with a plan for a national highway system um, before even any funding was uh, secured, um, just planning for the future um, in the late 1940s. Um, and this plan um, thought most partly about national defense, but also partly about interstate commerce, basically. Um, and was the idea was to try to improve uh, both the operation of the economy uh, nationally and also improve uh, defense readiness, uh, making sure there were places for airplanes to land, if there was an invasion, making sure that uh, military uh, material could be shipped around the country easily. Um, and uh, that, so that was sort of the state of things in the late 1940s, um, but it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of funding provided for actually building anything. Um, you might have heard of Robert Moses in New York City, uh, who was the, uh, the first head of the Metropolitan um, Transportation Authority that runs, including the subways and the commuter rail, the, uh, the, the bridges. Um, and tunnels 
Um, and he actually was able to secure a bunch of funding to build a bunch of the highway network within New York City um, in the 40s. But that was kind of the exception. Um, there wasn't really a, a, a national initiative to get this rolled out until the Highway Act of 1956. Um, mm. And what that did was basically it appropriated a lot of money every year to be dispersed to the states um, to build out uh, the plan uh, slowly over time. Um, but it was really the yeah. responsibility of the states to do the construction and the federal government paid most of the cost. Okay. And, and so we build this extensive interstate highway system. And what effect did that have on the American landscape and on the landscape of cities? Yeah. So one of the interesting uh, things about the way the U.S. highway system was built is mm -hmm. the idea was, hey, we're going to make cities work better by making the downtowns more accessible. Right, so if mm -hmm. you think about highways, interstate highways that serve U.S. cities, almost always they have uh, connections that go right downtown and often cut right through the center of downtown, um, and that was really uh, damaging in some ways, uh, in the sense that it uprooted neighborhoods. There's the famous story of the Cross Bronx Expressway that basically destroyed all the neighborhoods that it it went through. Um, and really uh, made them much less nice places to live. Um, but it also, of mm -hmm. course, improved accessibility to the suburban areas tremendously and caused a lot of uh, population decentralization and the growth of commuting suburbs. Um, and also the growth of just suburban areas of cities uh, entirely in the, in the sense that firms moved their jobs out to the suburbs as well as people moving out to the suburbs. So it really changed how cities operated in a big way and, and de-emphasized uh, the importance of the downtowns, which I think was something that was not fully anticipated by the planners in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And one question for you too, could you move your mic oh. up just maybe like by your nose? Yep. Is there that better? Go. It might just work. I'm getting a little, a little pop. Yeah, I'm Sorry getting a little, that. yeah, that's it. No, no, no problem at all. No problem at all. That's that's my job here. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny because in it, it it sounds to me then from what you're saying that the original intent of those highways were to facilitate movement into the cities, right? And what they actually ended up doing was moving a lot of people and businesses out of them. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, and also reducing the quality of life in the cities at the same time, which was I think one of the push factors, uh, in addition to the accessibility gains of uh, that moved people out. Yeah. And from an economic standpoint, uh, obviously, you know, you have winners and losers. The cities were the losers. The suburbs were the winners. Holistically, mm -hmm. though, for the metro region, what was the economic impact of that highway system? Yeah. So I think so I've tried to do some of these calculations and um, I think holistically you would find like on aggregate, there were definitely gains. So mm -hmm. sort of calculate, if you, if you kind of do a back of the envelope type calculation, the sort of numbers you get is just because of the fact that basically building a highway, or say a radial highway going out from the center into the suburbs mm -hmm. increases the amount of land that can be used 
in the urban area because you can now travel to more places basically that mm. each each highway gives you something like two two and a half percent uh sort of welfare mm. improvement okay um and that's because we like living in bigger homes you know and bigger homes get cheaper when we you know have more space available to build on basically that's an, an accessible location um that's the main yeah. mechanism yeah and how would you measure you, you mentioned welfare improvement H- how would you measure that exactly yeah so what basically what you have to do is you say well people or households spend something like 20%, 25% of their income on housing. And when we open up more space, that makes housing cheaper because now the land part of it is cheaper, right? And so mm-hmm. we can kind of calculate how much that causes housing costs to go down, maybe something like 5 to 10%, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And people value that, uh, cheaper housing. That's mm-hmm. part of the welfare gain. The other part of the welfare gain is commutes are faster, right? So you can mm-hmm. drive faster and you save some on commuting time. And you can kind of yeah. add that into the calculation and you put those two together and you get something like two, two and a half percent welfare gain per radial highway. Yeah, and I'm, I'm interested too in commuting times because one of the things that I seem to get from your work, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, was that when we created the highway system, it seems like we almost artificially created demand. So it seems like we had, we created the highways, they lessened commuting times, but as a result, more people went on the road, which elongated commuting times, made it more difficult. And then that's required expansion and so on, which is almost driven, it almost had a, a sort of a, uh, a self-reinforcing yeah. effect in a way. So so the, the issue of road congestion, if you look at um, data on congestion, um, it really wasn't that bad in most cities until the late 1980s. Because what happened was um, they just were building out the highway system during the whole period from like 19, the mid 50s until the early 90s. And they would yeah. kind of keep up, as you say, like, oh, congestion got bad. Well, they'd add a lane, they'd add another connector, they'd add another ring road. And there was federal funding to do this. Um, and it wasn't until the early 90s that basically the highway system was finished and there was less funding available to kind of keep up with this growing demand. And then the congestion started to kick in more and more. Um, and you're right, you know, commuting times started going up, uh, after you know, starting in the early nineties, uh, to today. Yeah. And it's interesting too. That's actually a nice segue because it's at that point in time that China starts investing heavily in infrastructure. And what was their approach? How did it differ from the United States? And maybe what were some of the similarities? Yeah. So the Chinese, um, Actually, it was somewhat similar from conception in the sense that, you know, the government decided we're going to do this and put a bunch of resources into doing it. The, I think one of the differences was in China, they can do it a lot cheaper than in the U.S. because they don't have to worry mm-hmm. so much about uh, legal constraints, environmental reviews, uh, you know, mm-hmm. local opposition. Uh, those things are not... Uh, 
very uh, d- don't end up biting very much in China, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> yeah. and the, one of the things that I think we've realized in the U.S. now, which is which is a real challenge, is that it's actually very expensive to build new infrastructure because of all of these frictions. You know, there's been some good research on this. Um, and in China, like these frictions basically are not there. So at the concept was similar and for similar motivations, but they were actually just able to, to build out a network that's similar in scope and scale as in the US in, in something more like 10 or 15 years rather than 40, 50 years. Um, and then they did the high-speed rail system shortly after that, right? But what's interesting with China also is that if you look at the effect on cities and the structure of the spatial structure of cities, it's very similar to what you find in the U.S. That you it generated population decentralization, employment decentralization uh, at similar rates as what you find uh, in the U.S. Yeah. What what I found interesting though is from your research, it sounds like in the case of China, it didn't have that same effect of gutting the cities. It sounds like the cities continued to grow. It's just the rate of density increase. That's exactly right. So the difference, uh, the difference is that during this period, 1990 to today in China, there's been a large amount of migration of people from rural agricultural areas to cities, which is kind of mm-hmm. like been lifting a rising tide lifting all boats, whether in the cities, mm-hmm. centers, or the suburbs in the urban areas, uh, whereas that urbanization had already occurred in the U.S. by the 1960s, yeah. right? And so then, really, there wasn't much rural migration left to help boost the fortunes of the center cities anymore, so they ended up uh, losing out as a result of the highways. The other question I had for you, too, is another big difference with uh, China's uh, change, or how, let me put, let me put, let me go back. Another question I had is that it seems like one of the key difference, or one of the key differences in how this investment in roads affected China was that in the U.S. you almost had this flattening of both residential land, but also businesses. So businesses sort of dispersed across the metro region. In China, it seems a lot more orderly. You know, so one of the things I noted from one of your papers was, you know, the city centers became more uh, about information-intensive mm-hmm. occupations, so finance, technology, and then it was the manufacturing sector that sort of moved out to the periphery where land was cheaper. Mm-hmm. Is that an effect of central planning, or did it just happen naturally that way? Actually, a very similar thing happened in the U.S that you had mm-hmm. a decentralization of manufacturing that was a big deal uh, as a result of the highways and actually manufacturing n- not only moved out to the suburbs, it actually moved out to rural areas. Like you think about where the big car okay. uh, production plants built in the past 40 years are, they tend to be in rural areas where land is really cheap because this is a really land intensive thing to do. It's, Interesting. So um, in China it's more difficult to build in rural areas because of the land use planning regime. Like there's land that's reserved for agriculture and land that's reserved Mm -hmm. for urban use. And so 
that's why you tend to see these big manufacturing facilities more in like sort of outer suburban areas than really rural areas in China. But the sort of general pattern was similar. The other thing you see in both US and China is um, it's true in China, you actually saw some centralization of services. In the US though, you see less decentralization of sort of mm -hmm. high skilled services. You know, you think about what sort of, the sort of people that work downtown in US cities these days, they are pretty highly paid white collar workers, right? And so, yeah. uh, you know, in 1980, you would have had a lot of people, clerks and uh, secretaries and people doing the sort of um, support activities that now mm -hmm. uh, are largely computerized or have at least, or have been moved offshore you know, to software companies in India, or at least are in the suburbs somewhere, kind of back office type stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's, I think that change has happened in both places. Um, and um, the, the highways have facilitated the sort of communication to some extent that has allowed the sort of separation of types of activities within businesses to occur, along with the internet. Of course. So that is interesting. There's kind of two things I want to explore here. You know, number one is, you know, a big conversation that I think started with the election of Donald Trump in 2016 was the plight of the Rust mm -hmm. Belt. And the fact that you've had these states in the northern Midwest that have been experiencing economic de decline for decades. The, the common boogeyman is, well, you know, aptly enough, China. Uh, there's automation. There are a number of other things. One of the things that's never f discussed is the actual migration of manufacturing to areas where it's cheaper. Do you feel, is that an important factor in the decline of urban manufacturing? So these regions like, you know, Detroit. Yeah. Uh, no, know, absolutely. Dayton. So absolutely. On. I mean, the offshoring of manufacturing uh, has clearly hurt the old manufacturing cities uh, and areas in the U.S. And that's, in some sense, been to the benefit of those areas in China. Though now, costs are going up in China, too, and you find kind of the less uh, skill-intensive type manufacturing, like furniture manufacturing and, and manufacturing that requires... Like a lot of land is not very skill intensive and requires, you know, sort of shipping heavy things. Now it's too expensive to do it in China. The, the government of China is subsidizing uh, industries like the furniture industry. And if you, most of the furniture you buy these days is made in Indonesia and Thailand and, and cheaper places than China. So, um, you know, this is globalization. And yeah, there are certainly losers at least temporarily from globalization because of other places to do business that are, that, that are cheaper. And, you know, I guess what I was driving at too is did the highway system actually start that decay before globalization? So did the highway system allow manufacturing to yeah, move excellent outside point. of like, again, like Detroit? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's clear that it did. Um, it allowed these sorts of relatively low skill intensive jobs to be able to move 
to the suburbs and then to the exurbs. And there's actually um, a pretty famous study from the 60s in economics by uh, someone named John Kane, who was mm -hmm. trying to understand kind of the fact that the cities were decaying so quickly. And one of the things, like one of his main observations was that there was a much faster decentralization of low-skilled work than high-skilled work. Uh, and yet the cities were mostly populated by people without as much education, right? And so there was a, kind of this mismatch between where the jobs were and where the people were living, um, and that was generating urban decay. And I think now we're seeing this at kind of a global scale, right? That is so interesting, and there are so many areas I could go into, but I would have you here <laughs> until Tuesday. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to put myself on a leash here, but you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting that you say that because as you were talking, you know, one of the topics I revisit a lot on this podcast is polarization mm -hmm. and how politically here in the United States, we've become extremely polarized, but a lot of that is due to the fact we don't live in the same places. So you have red areas, you have blue areas and, and they're typified by uh, again, in the case of the blue areas, to your point, you know those highly educated white collar workers, and then the red areas have aligned, have or I should say, the red areas have realigned uh, more around uh, the manufacturing, more around the the working class. It used to be uh, a huge part of the Democratic vote, mm -hmm. and and it almost seems to me that this that the highway system in a lot of ways created an environment where people of different backgrounds didn't have to mix anymore. They were effectively separated by income levels, separated by uh, job type. Is that too far of a leap or? It sounds, it's a very logical uh, argument. The, the one piece of evidence from the economics literature, I do know about um, sort of how where uh, how how the change in where jobs are have affected uh, voting patterns and political polarization. There's this study by uh, three authors, Otter, uh, Dorn, and Hansen, about the fact that first offshoring to China as you might expect, disproportionately hurt places that were manufacturing intensive mm -hmm. in the U.S. But then second, these places started voting uh, much more Republican uh, shortly afterwards. Um, and mm -hmm. I think they looked at, uh, I think they have some follow-up where they looked at the Trump vote as well. And as you can imagine, you know, th yeah. th this, it's very predictive that these places that were really hurt uh, by offshoring, uh, really became strong uh, Trump supporters. Um, yeah, and and then you know you have a backlash on the other side, of course, and you do have this increasing sort of spatial polarization of where different types of people live. And I suppose I I, I would say probably the internet might be a bigger um, source uh, of that. Uh, an explanation for that and, and just globalization opening up free trade um, mm -hmm. as well then but the highway system fits in there because opening up the world to free trade um, is not doesn't really 
amount to being able to buy goods from all over the world unless there's a good domestic highway network that you can ship the goods through. 40%, folks. That's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. The, the second thing I'll, I'll throw out there, too, and this is something that came up in, in, in what you were saying earlier, is... You know, there's been a big question as to why is crime, why has crime gone down? Mm-hmm. So why since the 1970s or, you know, let's say 80s when cr- violent crime in U.S. cities was probably at its peak, why has crime been going down? And there have been a number of theories thrown out there. There's been, you know, uh, abortion being legalized nationally in the 1970s. My, <laughs> my theory, and unsubstantiated Nathaniel, is that video games got better, <laughs> so everybody hung out inside, and uh, which correlates nicely with obesity, and uh, obese criminals have a tougher time get running away. Um, and then this, the but the but the the one that we've that, that's never been talked about is just this sort of like economic realignment, yeah. And the fact that to your point, um, you had a large group of less skilled workers living in cities, who where the jobs had moved onto the periphery outside of where they live outside of commuting distance and that that kind of created those conditions and then oddly enough what you see something that isn't talked about alongside the rise or alongside the the decline in crime is the rise in urban property values yeah and you know obviously it's kind of a chicken and egg question did the property values go up because crime went down or did crime go down because different people were moving in. And it seems like from what you're saying, it sounds like the latter. Yeah, so I think one of the things that kept uh, a lot of uh, relatively low-income people in cities in the 70s and 80s was just that rents were really cheap. Rent is going to be probably your largest expense. And you really are going to be then really value a place that has low rents even if it's not a very nice place to live. Um, and yeah. 
that that I think has been a major force keeping the inner cities populated. Um, and but that was only going to last. You know, there, there's no reinvestment in the housing stock then, and the places just keep decaying. And then at some point, it can no longer be sustainable, and you're going to have yeah. uh, redevelopment. And that's what we've seen in the very centers of cities. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, starting in the '90s. Um, and moving down in the big cities in the 90s and moving to the smaller cities uh, since 2000, but with a different population, right? With the more white collar, higher income people living in the newly built housing. Um, So, yeah, I mean, uh, so I think maybe part of the thing about the crime is there were all these reasons why cities were decentralizing um, and the people who were not decentralizing were there for the cheap rents and um, there wasn't a lot of probably political will to deal with the crime problem until the 90s when mm-hmm. you had higher income people moving in again. And and I think higher income people we know have more political power than lower income people do. I know you're an economist and I'm totally walking us out on a limb yep. here. So I appreciate you you answering that question. That's fine. Because I know I, we're way outside. I actually have a paper about gentrification too and thinking about the reasons oh, perfect. driving okay. urban. So, but it's, it's it's not really about the highways, but that's okay. We could, we'll let the conversation yeah, take us wherever it takes us. That's, all that's good. it. I told you. I, I warned <laughs> you we were going to veer off course. I want to jump back then into, you know, into, and, and into both China and, and the United States. And you know, your work, as I was going through it, it really got me thinking about GDP growth in general, yeah. how we measure it and what causes it. And you know, there's a lot made of the immense economic gains Americans had in the 1950s and even in the 1960s. And that would also have been at a time when there was a lot of highway construction, a lot of new home construction, a lot of purchases to... Uh, a lot, a lot of purchases to fill those homes, yeah. um, and uh, and and again with with China, we'll I'll just go over there for a second. You know, there's been a lot made about their GDP growth, and you know, one of the statistics I read just recently is something like 26 percent of China's GDP is construction. Yeah, which is a risk. I mean, that that we're starting to see now that maybe the housing markets there are overvalued to get an asset bubble. Um, and, and yeah, that would be something as an investor, I might be worried about. I invite all anyone listening to Google Thamestown. Are you familiar with Thamestown? No, I'm not. So the, again, in Shanghai, they were, they were, they were building so much that developers had to start to craft these gimmicks to get people to, to buy. And so this one developer, built, I kid you not, a replica English village complete with a fish and chip shop called Thamestown, and it's outside of Shanghai. They didn't sell a house. So there is quite literally in the middle of Shanghai, you know, again, on the outskirts of Shanghai, this abandoned English English village. village. Like, oh yeah, yeah. But I I guess that's, that's the big question, which is, was that GDP growth, was that prosperity more due to the injection of capital from infrastructure spending, but then also all the construction that allowed, all the purchases that, all the demand that created? Yeah, excellent question. Like, did we build the highways because we were getting richer or did the building of the highways actually 
facilitate us getting richer, right? Yes. Um, I think it's some of both, uh, for sure. Okay. So I think if you look at probably the main reason the U.S. saw such rapid post-World War II economic growth was because the population was becoming more educated. It allowed there to be actually productivity growth. You know, this, you, you yeah. saw someone doing the same job in 1970 relative to 1950, and they were just able to do it better because they were more educated. Of course, there's an interaction with, with the highway network. Um, part of what the highway network did was it allowed them to commute to more potential jobs and maybe find a job that fit their skills better. It allowed manufacturing to innovate um, through giving it better access to suppliers and better access to markets. Yeah, it's, it's clearly going to be some of both. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think the same is true for China. You know, yeah. in 1990, uh, China was a fully planned economy uh, with mm-hmm. uh, a school system providing skills that were not driven by market demand, but just by whatever the bureaucrats thought uh, the kids should know. And there was some overlap there, but now, you know, yeah. we have a whole professional set of professional schools, et cetera, in China, just like in the U.S., that are training people in skills that the market demands. the the other The other question I have too is part of the reason this infrastructure bill going through Congress is so big is because we haven't made any major investments in infrastructure in a long time, right. and those repair costs have been deferred. And getting back to this whole idea of GDP growth. Is the cost of maintaining that infrastructure worth the economic benefits? That's a hard question. Um, I think it's so one of the things you find with highways Mm -hmm. is there's a lot of heterogeneity in the economic benefits. You know, you see um, a lot of highway overbuilding going on in places that Mm -hmm. are not don't have much population growth you know it's a way of distributing pork to politicians that have power yeah right um and uh that's uh that's been well documented um and so Mm -hmm. you know fixing those bridges rather than replacing them with something with lower capacity that's cheaper uh is probably is certainly not worth it uh in these declining uh, areas of the country. However, politically, it's probably difficult, uh, if not impossible, to avoid fixing those bridges at the same time as, you know, rebuilding I-95 in southern Connecticut, say, uh, which I think really, yeah. uh, if you've ever driven on an I-95 in southern Connecticut, you know, you've seen what happens when a bridge goes out. It's a huge disaster, right? And it's an old oh, highway. Unfortunately, and, I have. Yep. Yeah, and it really, you know, there will be huge economic benefits to making sure that thing is in, is is up to a state of good repair, right? Um, and yeah. I think the benefits you get from fixing the Connecticut I ninety fives of the of the country probably uh, outweigh the slight costs of making sure, uh, you know, the highway that connects Cedar Falls and Waterloo, Iowa, is in good repair. You know, so overall, I think the the benefits are positive. But of course, with any political allocation, you're gonna yeah. 
you're going to have some some extra things to do that aren't necessary. And this is I'll, this is maybe a bit more of an open question. I'll start with China, but open it up to whatever you want to throw in there, which is, you know, are there things that China's infrastructure project can teach us? Are there things we could do better, like other than totally ignoring the will of the people and bulldozing <laughs> communities without their input? Like, are there are there other things we could be doing that are smarter than maybe what we're doing now or what's being proposed? Let me let me say a few things. One yeah. is, I just read a paper actually last week mm-hmm. that showed that sixty percent of the intercity highways in China mm-hmm. are, at least from today's perspective, overbuilt. Mm-hmm. They're uncongested. They don't have much traffic. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe I'll be proven wrong in thirty years. You know, mm-hmm. but. Um, it's probably then would have been better to build these highways later, actually at the time that they're going to be used. Um, Two is, I think we do have a lot to learn in the sense that we can observe how did they build these highways and railroads in China so much at so much lower cost than we did. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think one thing that you see is and you also see it in Europe, you have these big conglomerates in China that are uh, basically controlled by the government that do a lot of this planning and construction. And they can mm-hmm. do that at scale because they have so many projects at once. They, they learn how to do it and they do a good job. They just keep doing it over and over again. Mm-hmm. The procurement process in the US, it's run by the states one by one and everything is put out to bid and it's much more decentralized. Um, And I think, I'm not sure, but I think there's be, it's it's an interesting question, interesting research question, whether that can account for some of the huge cost differences. I mean, part of the reason China was able to build so much is just their costs are so so much lower than ours are. Yeah. But you make an interesting point, which is there are only a handful of aircraft manufacturers in the world. And that's because you need to be able to manufacture at scale in order to know how to do it right. And it sounds to me like what you're saying is the U.S. could actually benefit from more centralization in this, at this standpoint, For, could benefit from... Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure if that's right, I, I, but I think it's something we should consider, right? That Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you see it in like defense contractors, right? You have like Lockheed and Boeing building the 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 fighter planes, you don't have you don't put each fighter plane out to bid to a separate uh, as as a separate you know uh, bid. You know we could we could do the same with the national highway system or national fixing of the highway system, and I bet it would be yeah. a lower cost than having each state DOT go project by project to do this. It's funny too because I jumped on this recording and i i tend to be a big fan of decentralization um and i tend to be maybe a bit of an infrastructure or highway system skeptic um at least for the building roads and the way we do um but you've you've converted me to an extent i'm, I'm kind of I'm, I'm i'm seeing the the benefits here um one thing you mentioned too and we we never got into it is you mentioned the other benefits of the the system that we have in place the highway system what what are those so so what do highways do they ship goods and they ship people right Um, in terms of value of shipment people are much more valuable than goods 
Um, And so I think the biggest benefit is facilitating commuting and travel, work-related travel, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, uh, shipping goods. I think the hard thing to think about is, well, does this... Does having a highway system actually uh, generate sort of new reasons for productivity growth? Um, mm-hmm. And that could be that could happen in the following sorts of ways. Like for example, now uh, because there's a highway between Philadelphia and New York, you can drive in an hour and a half. Say uh, maybe that increases collaboration uh, between people in Philadelphia and people in New York. And maybe that allows them to come up with new ideas more easily together uh, that generates economic growth. Um, and that's kind of like the commuting idea. It just allows, it facilitates more interpersonal contact. And I think that's, I mean, the, yeah. the, the interpersonal contact and the generation of new ideas is the big, going to be the big driver of GDP growth. Okay. Uh, and I think, I don't think we have a great, great, evidence right now on how important the highway system has been for that but there are a few papers that have do show some evidence that this is indeed the case that you see cities with more highways after the highways were built they started doing more patenting there was there were more collaboration between inventors within the metro area and with inventors in nearby metro areas that had highway connections um and so i think you know, those sorts of mechanisms could be important. And I think there, there's probably some good research to be done to try to understand them better. I know we're, we're just a little before the end of the hour. That is a perfect place to end it. Great. Um, this has been great. I, I absolutely love this. So thanks for taking the time to, to talk. Thanks for having me on. It's been, it's been a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review. If you didn't, hopefully you didn't get to this part and be inspired to slam me publicly. Either way, can't say I didn't ask for it. Now, I will have links to Nathaniel's work in the show notes on ydhty.com. Just click the link that says episodes in the upper right-hand corner, and you shall find... Now, a couple things I found fascinating about this conversation. First, was the impact that the creation of the interstate highway system had on urban decay. And we often hear about how the creation of highways destroyed neighborhoods, but we rarely hear about how jobs moved out of the cities and left many lower income workers stranded without the means to provide for themselves. And It's also noteworthy that it allowed manufacturers to relocate to less expensive parts of the United States because there's a lot made of the effect globalization had on America's manufacturing sector, but not so much is made of the fact that plants in Tennessee and South Carolina put as much pressure on auto manufacturing in Detroit as any factory abroad did. And we will be diving more into the impact the interstate highway system had on one American city in the next episode. Until then, as always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's editorial advisor, and now producer is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. We're still producing this ding-dang thing in loving memory of the big Gino Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. 
Uh, bye-bye.